This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Just uh, a few words before I get into the main uh, argument that we're trying to make on this paper about the way we came into the question of mercenaries and mercenarism and the way the discourse on mercenaries and mercenarism enabled and legitimized the use of force in Libya in 2011. And I need to, to start by saying that the person who actually knows stuff about mercenaries and mercenarism is Catherine. So all your general questions that assume doctrinal knowledge, please direct them. <laughs> Uh, to her, the way I got um, into the issue, and it has somehow survived still um, in the footnotes, and I think in the general preoccupation of the paper, is the way in 2011 both international and domestic discourses, both legal and political, really juxtaposed um, Libya to Iraq, right? So the idea was that Libya was almost the salvation of international law and the salvation uh, of using force across borders because it was happening legally, it was happening uh, pursuant to a UN Security Council authorization, and therefore it was, in a sense, exercising um, the specter of Iraq and the specter of the perceived lawlessness um, of the Bush administration. And even though the moment is like almost 10 years ago, we do think that there is something important about it because of a very similar anxiety today, obviously, about um, the position of the current U.S. administration towards all things international and to the extent in which this anxiety can lead to a certain romanticization, obviously, of international law. As it was happening, and I think that's a very interesting thing, and it was happening just 10 years ago during the Bush administration, right? We all had to rally back and save the international, rally behind the international legal order and save it from this lawless administration. And here came um, Libya as this perceived uh, salvation moment. So for those who perhaps don't remember it either due to their age or because they really have tried to forgotten it, this was especially for liberal internationalists um, a moment of euphoria. The idea was that resolutions 1970 and 1973 had brought about a new, much more humanized uh, international legal order that Aston Dye and Nasli were saying before used force in order, and especially really destructive force in order to protect um, human rights. And obviously, subsequently, due to the collapse of the state apparatus in Libya, um, a certain ambivalence ensued about these um, experiments, and especially. There has been a debate, relatively extensive doctrinal legal debate, about whether um, the actual acts of NATO, and especially um, the fact that NATO actively participated in overturning uh, Gaddafi's government, was inconsistent with the UN Security Council authorization. And these debates are very long, and you know they're in the footnotes and everything. But we are worried that the problem ran much deeper and that the problems had started long before um, uh, NATO going after Gaddafi for a number of reasons. And our main reason here is um, the existence, both in the popular and, as we will show, in the legal discourse of a particular narrative, which was Gaddafi's regime, one of the reasons that make the Gaddafi government so abhorrent and really necessitated it being overturned, was that he was standing against his own people by recruiting African mercenaries, and Africa here meant very, very clearly black. Uh, mercenaries, and also there were again all these narratives going on, and Hillary Clinton would talk about them, also about how um, these mercenaries were particularly brutal, uh, allegedly, and also how they were the source of widespread and organized uh, sexual violence against uh, Libyan women um, who were opposing 
uh, in protesting against Gaddafi's government. Um, and what we want to show in this paper is the very different treatment afforded to these mercenaries, legal, uh, real or imaginary, as I'm going to um, say in a moment, the very legal treatment afforded to them in comparison to the general unwillingness of Western nations in general and of the Security Council in particular to tightly regulate the use of mercenaries in other contexts, especially in contexts of conflicts of Afri in Africa. And we're arguing that in this case, race, proximity to Western interests, and incorporation or not to corporate structures of security provisions have have been determinative of the legal treatment um, of foreign fighters, of paid foreign fighters in international law, or in other worlds, through um, resolutions 1970-1973, international law, and especially the Security Council, intervened and pronounced about what sort of bodies to adopt and dies. Um, language can cross borders in order to fight as a job. What sort of bodies can do that legally and lawfully, and what sort of bodies actually constitute a threat to international peace and security when they cross borders and they get involved in fights for, um, for pay, or if they're perceived um, to be doing so. So, the, the story of Libya, the legal story of Libya is, of course, that in Resolution 1970, the Security Council did not authorize the use of force, but it clearly adopted the language of the responsibility to protect. And also what it did, and I think is really important, if you look back in the annex of both Resolution 1970 and 1973, which is always where the fun is in Security Council resolutions, um, it imposed targeted sanctions against a number of individuals, including um, emb a Libyan ambassador in sub-Saharan na nations, in Chad, in Niger, um, in Mali, and so on and so forth. And we argue that this was actually the way in which the Security Council subscribed uh, to this um, idea of the foreign mercenaries, and actually the way in which, not explicitly obviously, but it also singled out a particular group of foreign fighters, the foreign fighters from sub-Saharan countries, black foreign fighters, as particularly dangerous for the situation um, in in Libya. And the second way in which we argue um, the, the Security Council again ratified this, this narrative about black danger in Libya was again by singling out a category that up until the point was pretty unknown to international law, the armed mercenary personnel as a particular threat to peace and security. So the idea was that it was not all foreign fighters that were dangerous, it was particularly the armed mercenary personnel, which is, for those of you that are familiar um, with international humanitarian law, it's a somewhat peculiar formulation, and it's unclear whether it coincides perfectly or not with the idea of mercenary in additional protocol one, which is an extremely, extremely narrow idea of who is a mercenary. Basically, you have to be pretty stupid to end up falling under this category. It has been tailored for people to be able to navigate and escape it for reasons that Catherine is going to explain. And the third reason we think um, that the Security Council intervened and ratified and assigned legal consequences um, to um, the idea of black mercenaries raping Libyan women was the very central role it designated to the Arab League in um, juxtaposition to African uh, forms of regionalism as relevant to the context. So the idea was that the most relevant regionalism in that context was, of course, the Arab League. And this needs to be read, we argue, as part of a general anxiety about the reorientation uh, of Gaddafi's government towards a more African idea of what 
what is the relevant um, regionalist there. And as um, Gaddafi positioning himself basically as some sort of leader, anti-imperialist leader in Africa. And the reason um, that these narratives uh, about black mercenaries became so easy to believe for a number of reasons, obviously including racism, was an ongoing international and domestic anxiety about this realignment of Libyan reimagination um, of Libya as an African state. And I'm going to stop now and give the floor to Catherine to explain how particular and ex exceptional this treatment mm -hmm. of mercenaries is in comparison to the rest of the international legal regime. Yes, and I think that we can't really appreciate how outrageous the resolution was in terms of mercenarism without taking a look at three quarters of a century of development of um, and of contests over the development of an anti-mercenary norm and international law, and in particular uh, the role of African states um, as well as other non-Western states, but um, principally driven from Africa um, in, in trying to develop the, the anti-mercenary norm, which was resisted so heavily by the West for so long. Um, and so in the written paper, I do this by having a close look at the resolutions of the General Assembly, uh, uh, the Security Council, the OAU and the African Union, and, and look at some of the inconsistencies there. Um, but in this presentation, what I'm hoping to do is uh, take a bit of a broader look at what I say are four regulatory moves or four different turns in the regulatory debate to look at how race is central to these different contests and to give us a better understanding of the significance of, you know, the Security Council's designation of uh, African mercenaries as a threat to international peace and security uh, in this particular context. All right, so I have... A Okay, so the first thing that I want to do is look at um, the, the first move being the prescription of mercenarism, driven very much by African concerns, ad bellum, use ad bellum concerns, um, that mercenarism needs to be limited, prohibited, uh, because it is a threat to international peace and security, and also because it's a threat to self-determination. Uh, and when we think uh, of the classical kind of objection to mercenarism, or when I think of the classical objection to mercenarism, I find it very difficult to, uh, not to think of Patrice Lumumba uh, and the assassination of the first democratically elected Prime Minister of the Congo, or Zaire, as it then was, by, by white mercenaries. Uh, he was um, a very eloquent and fearless um, uh, advocate of pan-Africanism and resisted the West um, very openly and we know that what happened after his assassination um, led to years of, of conflict in the Congo. Um, and this was very much the kind of quintessential um, mercenary image of this kind of white mercenary-like Mad Mike whore um, coming in, leading small bands of mercenary troops, destabilising newly independent um, African states. Uh, and so the African Union uh, was, uh, or the OAU was very concerned with mercenarism right from this time. Uh, we had some early jurisprudence within Africa prosecuting individuals for the crime of mercenarism. Um, and one thing that I do in, in kind of other work is look at the limited promise of international criminal law um, for African states hoping um, to gain some visibility um, for the issue of mercenarism. The Luanda mercenary trial is very rarely mentioned in mainstream international law texts. I mean, if we take an audit of international criminal law texts, I am yet to find any mention of the mercenary trial, although I think it's um, one of the most significant ones. So there's this big push from within Africa to, um, to clearly denounce mercenarism and to develop a strong anti-mercenary norm consistent with African security interests. And race was very much at the heart of these concerns. Um, if we look at the, the imagery, we're looking at white mercenaries coming to fight um, in African countries. All right. The next move, I say, is the, uh, the move of Western states in watering down anti-mercenary norms. So we have really strong regional practice coming from the OAU. And then in this section, I kind of I like to refer to this as white guys gleefully signing stuff. So, uh, <laughs> so here we have um, the signature of the first for the, for the additional protocols of the Geneva Conventions. 
Um, and we have um, one of the first international instruments rather than regional instruments um, dealing with mercenarism. And there's, this was a real watering back of um, African OIU concerns about mercenarism. There was a real um, watering back of the consequences, the legal consequences of mercenary status under the um, additional protocols. All it meant was a denial of POW status rather than uh, assigning criminal responsibility for mercenarism, for instance. Um, and the definition, as Dina um, already suggested, is so intentionally um, weak that it's virtually impossible to find someone who will um, fit within the definition. And Jeffrey Best has a, a famous quote where he said that anybody um, who, who ends up being um, found to be a mercenary deserves to be shot and his lawyer with him um, because the category is so, um, so poorly drafted. Um, interestingly, uh, Western states at the drafting uh, conference were pushing for a unanimous, um, a unanimous definition of mercenarism. It was really important to the West that this provision be unanimous. Um, even, even though Nigeria had first proposed um, the, the provision, uh, there was a, a, key, a big move to water down the provision and bring African states on board in the name of unanimity. Um, all right, so then what we had, um, and I'm going to move beyond mercenarism a little bit, but I want to um, point to some other ways in which Western states have watered down the anti-mercenary norm by trying to bring about a legitimate face for the modern private military industry. And there's been a big move to... Um, to draw a line between what is said to be legitimate war fighting by private contractors and the mercenarism of old. And I suggest that this has very racialized um, undertones as well, um, and that one of the unspoken factors in trying to dif differentiate between the mercenarism of old and the modern legitimate private military industry is racialized. And I'll return to that a little bit later. But we had Western states involved in the development of the Montreux document. Um, we had private military contractor firms developing their own codes of conduct and, and industry-wide codes of conduct. And then, oh, here's some white people. Um, so this is the development of... A an oversight mechanism for the International Code of Conduct for Private Security Service Providers. Note that we're not even talking about mercenarism anymore. Um, kind of gleefully signing this multi-stakeholder initiative to oversee the legitimate industry. And if we look at the outcome, we've got this association that's been developed. And this is just from the front, the landing page of their website. Their objective is to promote responsible private security. You can see how drastically we've moved away from a prohibition of mercenarism, and we are now promoting the responsible provision of private military or security activity. Uh, and here are some more happy white people. Um, I, we have in Australia we call it Where's Wally, but I think in the US it's Where's Waldo or something. But we can, if you look carefully, you might be able to spot some people of colour. Um, and some women. Uh, but anyway, so that, this, is, this is part of the context in which um, the Libya intervention is happening. So we're seeing the respectable face of private military activity, um, which I say can't really be detached from African moves for an anti-mercenary norm. All right, now moving along to um, Mutua's um, conception of savages, uh, victims and saviours. What I'd like to argue here is that one thing that happened, one dynamic we can't ignore, is that ad bellum concerns, and ad bellum appeals to muscular humanitarianism or um, the use of force to promote humanitarian objectives, started to expand the market for this kind of force. So not only did um, the West fail to constrain private military activity, but it started to expand the market for that activity. And we can see this, um, first of all, for instance, through, the, through Kofi Annan's statements that we, we might need to start using mercenaries in peacekeeping forces. He later retracted that and said the world may not yet be ready for privatised peace, suggesting that we're on a trajectory and we're just not at the evolutionary stage where we're ready for that. Donald um, Rumsfeld, sorry, um, talked about military outsourcing, the failure to outsource being one of the major threats to US security in, a, in a, a speech that he delivered to the Pentagon on the eve of the September 11 attacks. He actually said the failure to outsource and, and Pentagon bureaucracy and waste was the greatest security threat facing the United States. And it's sad that he was proven so wrong um, in such a spectacular fashion the next day. 
Um, and what we've seen is a move to in, um, outsource peacekeeping. This is a DynCorp contractor in the former Yugoslavia, and the UN is increasingly moving to private force. The other thing that has started to happen is that the industry has started to brand itself, use, adopting this language of humanitarian intervention to position itself as a humanitarian actor. And so what follows um, are a series of photos, essentially, of here are, here are some of international law's victims. They are racialized victims. Um, one Part of my work is I look at the marketing practices of private military contractors, and you this is just the tip of the iceberg, but you'll see lots of brown bodies, principally brown children. Um, this is a Blackwater advertisement uh, that was posted in a journal a, a month before the Nisua Square shooting, um, which is very much presented in this, I, this idea of um, mercenaries being the saviours to brown um, victims. Uh, lots of kids. This guy is an adult, I guess, but he doesn't get ahead. Um, and more children. All right. I'm really running out of time, but I want to say as well that part of what's going on at the same time is we still have white mercenaries engaging in classical kind of mercenary activity in, in Africa. So here we have Simon Mann, who uh, attempted a coup in Equatorial Guinea. Um, and I say that there are racial dimensions to the way in which he was treated in particular. So it was the, the black mercenaries serving with him who ended up in jail. He ended up receiving a presidential pardon from the very prime president that he was there to overthrow and um, was then employed by the president as an advisor afterwards. So I think that even the treatment of mercenaries is highly racialized in the modern age. Um, all right, and now moving across to Libya. So here we go. Um, I say that moving back to the USAD Bellum, um, this is one reason why it is just so outrageous that the Security Council invoked African mercenarism as a threat to international peace and security, justifying the intervention, a foreign intervention, into the affairs um, of, an Af of an African state. And we'll, we can talk about uh, African versus Arab in, an, in another context. Um, and just as I wind up, uh, here's something from um, last month. Um, okay, so... One thing that happened uh, following the intervention was that it opened up a space for Russian mercenaries to flood the scene. Um, and so the Russian mercenaries are part of this um, move to a, a legitimate face of private military activity. This is the, the Wagner Group in particular, that it's expanding its operations through the Middle East, through Africa and in lots of places. So Wagner is... Um, involved quite heavily in Syria as well. So the Security Council saying we need to intervene in order to suppress the threat of African mercenaries and income Western mercenaries, white Russian mercenaries. And then just from a couple of weeks ago, here we have uh, a new concern of the influx of, here we go, some black mercenaries from the Sudan and apparently thousands of Sudanese mercenaries are now flooding into the country. So I'll leave it there because my time's up, but um, it's interesting to think about the implications of that. Thank you, thank you Catherine and Dina. Wadi? Okay, thank you. Thanks uh, to the UCLA Law Review for uh, having us and uh, inviting me and to Aslan Tendai also uh, for their efforts here. Uh, from my perspective, I'm always struggling with how to bring my own work into the context of the more uh, the, uh, explicitly the racial discussion, the legacy of CRT, and more uh, more to the point, Twail. Uh, in terms of the work that I've done, focusing on mostly criminal prosecutions of individuals this government has deemed to be terrorists or, uh, or charged with terrorist-related crimes. And I think, you know, I think when I started to look just by chance at the UN terrorist or counterterrorist system, the word counterterrorism is an awful word. That's why, of course, I chose to name my seminar counterterrorism, but that's another story for another day. But anyway, dispensing with my objections to any n nomenclature, I think, the, I think the, when I took a look at the UN system, the UN counterterrorism apparatus as it exists, I was stunned by how it had uncritically adopted so many of the American formulations. Um, and I 
sort of the more I looked, the more I found to be kind of problematic. And I think the approach I took is more kind of granular. Uh, and so maybe in the final formulation of the paper, when I get around to kind of fixing it up after the first this first draft, I'll try to make those linkages uh, between the greater theories and and um, and Twail and, and uh, critical race theory. Uh, but for now, the focus is a little more detail-oriented, granular, uh, so to speak. And because when we look at the international system and what it refers to as counterterrorism, we can we can figure out who the sort of terrorist is, what their what that person's particular identity and makeup is, what form terrorism takes, and the structure as it exists, given to us by the powerful actors in the international system. Um, takes quite a toll on human rights. Uh, Specifically here, the prototypical terrorist, uh, as we've come to to understand, mostly him but sometimes her, is a non-state actor of an Islamist bent. Okay, And when we look at the UN documents on terrorism, we see that this sort of, this construct with its implicit biases is reflected in those those materials. Uh, The terms and concepts that have been used, employed by the UN, radicalization, preventing and countering violent extremism, uh, and the phenomena that the, the UN system identifies, the scourge of foreign fighters, etc., all suggest what the fine print makes explicit. Terrorism is Islamism uh, for the most part. Uh, to the extent that terrorist groups are named uh, explicitly, that is to say, the only ones identified are the Islamic State and the formulation known as Al-Qaeda, which, by the way, may be a complete, uh, a complete. you know, we've been laboring under this for 20 years. It may be a complete misnomer. There's a historian at uh, UC Davis who basically, Al-Qaeda means the base in Arabic, and he went to Yemen and he found that basically that there was a, a bunch of preachers who kept making use, Islamist preachers who kept referring to the base as in the military base of a particular organization. So it never meant to name itself Al-Qaeda. But that's another story for another day. Sorry, I almost hit Chris there in the face. That people here are not that safe up on the panel. <laughs> once, I get, once I get a full head of steam. Okay. So proceeding on a dual track, the UN, the UN has two major counterterrorism entities. I'll dispense a little bit with the discussion of the of the uh, Security Council, uh, the Security Council body, because I think we all are aware of the deep problems with the Security Council and how it operates in the five permanent members who can veto anything. Um, But essentially the focus here of the major international body when it comes to terrorism is that it's non-state violence of a political nature. So obviously maybe it's an an inevitability that an organization made up exclusively of nation-states or those aspirant nation-states, that the complex and contested phenomenon of terrorism is going to be confined to the acts of non-state actors. Uh, the question of state terrorism is left unaddressed. It's, not, it's just bl- uh, plainly not on the agenda. Uh, it, that, and that has obviously, a, that has obviously a, um, a long history in the UN uh, and it's kind of culminated in this moment where we don't even deal with state terrorism. We just deal with non-state terrorism. Uh, again, there's a Security Council body, but that's less important. I want to focus more on the what has become to be called the United States, United, excuse me, United Nations. Uh, that was a misnomer. That was a slip of the tongue. But uh, United Nations Office of Counterterrorism, which was passed by a UN or created by a UN General Assembly resolution in June of. Uh, 2017. It's now headed by someone who has the title of Undersecretary General, which is the first, this is, quote, the first major institutional reform undertaken by the Secretary General of the UN. Now, once you get beyond the mildly impenetrable, as I put it, globalized jargon about the goals of the office, that is to say, strengthen the delivery of, quote, strengthen the delivery of United Nations counterterrorism capacity building assistance to member states, end quote. Uh, it seems that the it seems that the plan that it seems that the office is geared to adopting a uniform plan, which has come to be called the UN Global Global Terrorism Global Counterterrorism Strategy, um, across the institution of the United Nations, and have that strategy instituted into the domestic policies of uh, the member states. Uh, 
the, 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 pillar, the four pillars of the strategy are kind of, um, you know, kind of boilerplate, uh, you know, strengthening capacity, the usual global jargon. The, the last one does, does give a nod to making sure that any counterterrorism policies comport with human rights, but that's a mildly quixotic exercise. Um, again, coming back to this issue of what constitutes the terrorist threat that has to be countered, basically this whole enterprise suffers from the lack of an internationally agreed upon definition of terrorism itself, even though there's a kind of a general understanding you can't kill uh, civilians in peacetime for political ends. That's not really, that's not really the, 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 the lack of a definition, and again, I'm hardly the first person to make this point, but it's still kind of runs through this whole this whole effort. Now, basically, to buttress my point about the terrorists being Islamist in the main, let's look at June 2018 in New York. There was a, quote, high-level conference of heads of counterterrorism agencies of member states that the UN Counterterrorism Office held. Uh, there, there, were, there were four sessions, two of which focused on fighting terrorism by combating the threat of violent extremism uh, and also that of foreign fighters. And this is not explicitly racist, at least in the, if you look at it at face value, or take it at face value, but what does it mean? Con uh, countering violent extremism, which actually that phraseology comes from this country, which essentially is concerned with violent extremism of an Islamist bet. So there's, you know, there, violent extremism really means Islamism. It, it, again, you have to kind of read through the lines. Um, and it's an offshoot of the theory that individuals can be radicalized, which, again, targets Muslims as, as the threat under the cover of racially neutral language. The other of foreign fighters, we don't need to say more, foreign fighters is uh, specifically associated with the so-called Islamic State threat. Um, and this June 2018 conference has spawned a series of regional high-level conferences, all building up to the second United Nations high-level conference of heads of counterterrorism agencies of member states, which is scheduled for June 2020 at the United Nations in New York. Now, where are these conferences taking place? In places like the United Arab Emirates, Hungary, Belarus. These are not countries that I would call bastions of human rights protections or boast strong civil society institutions. Um, but they do remain, they do remain focused on counterterrorism and, and all that that can produce in terms of a lack of cohesive focus. So, for example, they start, if you read some of these documents, all of a sudden they'll bring up the, 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 the link between terrorism and illegal drug trafficking. Okay? They don't seem to produce any evidence about, you know, where this link comes from, uh, where this link comes from. Um, how it is that drug dealers and terrorists are working together, okay? I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't exist or it doesn't exist, but the evidence has not been produced. All I can look back is on my own kind of investigation of American narco-terrorism prosecutions and where there's a statute in this country that outlaws, you know, and provides enhanced penalties for people engaged in drug-dealing activities that, uh, that supposedly further terrorism, the most famous of those, uh, most famous of those prosecutions was when the FBI sent an informant to Mali and basically went around asking people if they would, you know, find a way to get drugs, uh, his drugs, to Europe, um, uh, and and on behalf of Al Qaeda. Of course, people in Mali, a relatively poor state, said, "Sure, we want your money." Then the next thing they know, they're being flown to New York to be prosecuted. So I don't know that the again I can just go by what the record is. I can't uh, you know I can't make up more. I'm unconvinced about that link, although UN you you know these UN conferences presuppose it, and m member states take up this kind of mantle that terrorism and uh, organized crime and drug dealing are working together without giving much without giving much evidence. Okay. Um, the UN, by the way, the UN Office of Counterterrorism, I should say, it's not like the U.S. national security apparatus in one sense in that here the national security agencies, lowercase a, plural, have a seemingly limitless budget, whereas the UN 
uh, is actually shilling for money and has produced a slick brochure which features, when if you want to know who the terrorist is, lots of people from Asia and Africa dressed in native, mostly Muslim garb uh, as a as a, a ploy to, to get money. So uh, it's a little bit different. And also all these efforts are located in countries with Muslim majorities or have a significant mu- Muslim population. They're all located in Asia and Africa, the single European country that has UN counterterrorism activities uh, is Kosovo, which is, is it a country? Well, okay. We, we won't, I won't pick that up. But, and again, who gives money to these operations? It's mostly Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Saudi Arabia giving $110 million and Qatar giving $75 million. Now ask what those countries have done to further terrorism in Syria, Yemen, etc. We won't, we won't ask those questions, but we'll just raise the issue. Okay, as a final point, because time is up. Okay, as a final point, this regime has produced, this counterterrorism regime has also been problematic for human rights and civil society in many countries across the world, uh, many countries across the world. There is a UN Special Rapporteur uh, for protecting human rights in, uh, in, the, in the counterterrorism regime, and she's documented, uh, she's documented many cases of repression of speech, political protest, etc. And what we've also seen here in this country and in Britain as well as in Europe is the new phenomenon of stripping citizens of their nationality uh, mostly on the cover, under the cover of the foreign fighters associated with the Islam, uh, Islamic State, but actually it goes. It, it started well before that. Uh, it started well before that, uh, and uh, the I think the upshot of all of this, uh, the upshot of all of this, is that we have a counterterrorism regime. Uh, we have a counterterrorism regime that essentially in the, has adopted the American. Has adopted the American sort of counterterrorist logic. It, for the most part, other large nations are quite happy with it: China, Russia, etc. And also, smaller nations are are happy in the sense that they get to use this this logic against their own citizens and cracking down on civil society. Uh, to to make a final point here, I I don't think we can discount or 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 downplay the the racial ethno religious link here so many of you might remember in the wake of the Christchurch shooting of March the Christchurch mosque shooting of March 2019 the prime minister of New Zealand Jacinda Ardern said we should never name the fellow who did this okay because we want to deny him notoriety for his actions if it had been a, a person with an arab or muslim or related name that would have never pertained. He would have been named right away as to show who the nature of the threat is. So even though she took a very courageous uh, a courageous position, uh, I think that the sort of the UN counterterrorism project makes clear who the terrorist is and all the, all the relevant problems uh, uh, attendant to that. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. John? Okay, thanks, Chris. And just to uh, reiterate the thanks to all uh, the amazing organizers and also to the, the amazing Asli Tendai Double Act. Uh, thank you for having us all here. For me personally, at this time of year, to get to get out of Ireland and come somewhere <laughs> where there's a blue sky and actual sunshine is, is a lovely treat. So thank you also for that. And just really happy to be here and to get to to keep learning from all the amazing work that's been done. So my <coughs> paper is, is um, trying to think about the relationships between uh, emergency and migration and race and the nation. So that's the kind of rhyming couplet uh, <laughs> title that I have. So I'll try and talk firstly about, about emergency and uh, the nation and about how international law has understood or defined those concepts and then try to think about what that can tell us about uh, migration and race in the uh, in the European border context. Um, so I am conscious there's a full panel on migration in, in the afternoon with people who, who know way more about this than me and have been doing amazing work on, on migration and race and on the inability of, of international law to, to fully reckon with that and I've learned a lot from 
the work of some of those people, uh, Jaya and Chantal and Tandai and many others. I referenced some of it in the paper, um, but I will just also apologise in advance if, if what I'm saying sounds somewhat superficial um, uh, on, on that front. I, I was also just thinking when, when Ashley was talking earlier about the connecting the, the work uh, on, on counterterrorism and national security with questions around, around migration and, and borders. And so, in a way, I, I think that's what I'm trying to do with, with this paper. These ideas, obviously, are, are deeply entangled. And a, one useful way, I think, to think about the connections between them is through the, through the notion of emergency crisis and, and the work that that, that, that does. Um, so the little kind of intro vignette I have in the paper um, starts with this... Um, um, moment last September when the, the new president of the European Commission announced her team of, of commissioners and, and in that context the, what was previously called the Commissioner for Migration, Home Affairs and Citizenship gets renamed as the Commissioner for Protecting Our European Way of Life. And so our European way of life in this context I think is among other things um, Code, code for whiteness, and so, and and in the context of this announcement, she she refers and kind of invokes the, the usual tropes around legitimate fears, and she says we have to address legitimate fears and concerns about the impact of irregular migration on our society. And again, uh, going to, to the, the discussion earlier and, and some of Daryl's comments that that you uh, referred to, and this is a, a, a kind of a superficial example about the, the politics of representation, but. In it, I think we see very clearly the way in which European does remain a, a, a euphemism for, for whiteness. And, uh, and, and the, so the, the Commission president ha- starts boasting about her, her team of commissioners being as diverse as Europe is. And th- so there's 27 commissioners, there's an almost 50 50 gender balance, they're from all the different countries around Europe and various political groupings and so on, but obviously all. 27 of them are, are white, and so we see that. Uh, I think that you know the, the uh, idea of, of uh, Europeanness as whiteness coming through there, and, and the clear um, implication in this process, I think, of making migration control at this particular historical moment in Europe about casting that as being about protecting a European way of life. The implication being that the preserving this idea of Europeanness as whiteness does obviously require heavy restrictions on migration from non-white spaces. And so in that move, uh, far-right ideas about migration, I think, are essentially now incorporated into mainstream politics in Europe with, through the, the lens and the language of, of racial non-discrimination and, and colorblindness on the face of it, operating as a veneer, really, that allows for centrist and liberal positions on migration to remain righteous in, in, in their own perspectives while effectively incorporating and mim- mimicking uh, the far-right the far thinking on, on these issues. And so liberals will balk at the overt racism of the far-right but are for the most part really at peace with the core premise of nationality-based migration rules, which in practice you know, are, are very clearly designed, and we see this in the European uh, immigration uh, system and the visa rules and so on, very clearly uh, uh, designed and set up in a, in a way that, that's indirectly but very predominantly race-based in how it, in how it operates. And so, and, and that's the system that, that international law creates and facilitates. It's a starting point for um, arguments by, by scholars like um, uh, Tom Ferrer is one I, I mentioned in the, in the piece who, who make the case for what he calls liberalism with borders and argues that there, there is no contradiction between supporting liberal values and human rights on the one hand and opposing migration rights for communities racialized as illiberal on the other hand. And so that's the liberal position in a state of, of, of normality. And so my argument then is that, um, that that's the starting point. And then in the notion of migration emergency or crisis provides scope for regimes like the European Union to, to further harden and entrench its, its border regime at opportune moments, and that international law and its understanding of emergency is, is implicated in this. And so I have a section about emergency as uh, racial sovereignty, which goes through some of this um, in, in theoretical terms and, and uh, finishes with the point uh, that... Um, uh, 
so I say, in, in thinking through this relationship between borders and, and legal political framings of emergency, my contention is that liberal legalistic constructs of first world migration crises, of human mobility for some as national emergency for others, um, uh, this idea of protecting our European way of life as a kind of a, a technocratic euphemism for fortress Europe, that, um, that all of this amounts to, to, to some form of coded incorporation of, of the, the, these far-right ideas of the Great Replacement or of white genocide. Uh, and this centres around racialized understandings of the nation, imaginaries of the European nations as white nations, and in this configuration, uh, the migration, the migration of, of too many people from non-white communities is seen as posing not only integration or security or, or resource challenges, but is an existential threat to the life of the European nation itself. Um, and so the concept of, of emergency and the state of emergency... Um, uh, okay, so... F- I've seven minutes gone, I've five minutes left. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Right. Um, okay, so the concept of emergency, uh, it, it, it appears in, in various different subfields of international law. Human rights law is uh, one where we, I think we have some of the most interesting drafting records and jurisprudence on what is meant by an idea of state of emergency. Uh, I go through some of that drafting records uh, stuff and how did the emergency is defined in the European Court, uh, the European Convention of Human Rights, the, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and how it's driven very much by the British uh, uh, position and the British context of, of being in and using emergency powers throughout the, the empires, throughout the, the colonies in the empire at that time, um, and, and insists on this idea and necessity of having the possibility of suspending human rights obligations in an emergency um, and, and, the, and, and one other interesting development which I point to in how an, an emergency is defined in those uh, processes and what happens very late in the day in the, the finalisation of the texts of those treaties is that the definition of the state of emergency gets changed from an emergency threatening the interests of the people to uh, an emergency threatening the life of the nation. And so we have this idea of the nation uh, brought in which seems to show a preference for this norm and this definition of, of emergency being rooted in a, in a more fixed and arguably ethno-racial concept of the nation rather than the, what it was previously in, uh, in terms of a, a more potentially more fluid and expansive and potentially inclusive, more inclusive notion of the people and, the, and their interests. And so uh, under uh, this definition, and, and we see this playing out then in, in how it's invoked and utilised by uh, by Britain, among other states, in, in a way that, that, that reveals racial contours over time. And so I won't have time to go all, into all the examples now, but um, from the state of emergency in Kenya in the 1950s, which was legalised under British law and international law, the, uh, the, 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 the nation and the life of the nation said to be under threat there was not any particular or collective Kenyan nation, but... It, but the, the white settler nation and the British nation by association. And so, and so the brutality and the internment camps and the forced labour and all of that is legalised and, and justified, even though it's done in a, a very openly racist uh, manner, the state of emergency operates to, uh, to insulate that. Sim- similar iterations of this in Cyprus, in Northern Ireland, in the War on Terror, all of which get brought up in the European Court of Human Rights and get, get challenged and the, the bottom line is that the European Court essentially um, comes up with an, an interpretation of emergency based on the definition that um, that privileges the British imperial uh, position and that also uh, um, uh, under, privileges a particular idea of Britishness in the war on context in the war on terror context, uh, particularly uh, which is contrasted to, to Muslimness as as other than white where you have uh, the existence of a suspect community, even where it includes citizens of the state itself, it's cast as a threat to the life of the white majority nation. And so we have Stuart Hall's um, uh, 
comments that the Britishness has always been racialized through and through, and it's always uh, been equated with, with whiteness, and we end up with an understanding of the nation in this context rooted in an international legal concept of, of sovereignty and its, and its right to, to include, uh, to exclude, sorry. And so, um, and so here we see international law understandings of the nation as increasingly useful to, to the political project of, of, white nation, of, of white nationalism. And that, that plays out then in, the, in the, um, the migration scenario, which I don't think I'm going to have time to fully, to fully go into, but I, I try and trace this. It goes back to um, uh, uh, the, the 1990s and some of the early uh, agreements and deals that, that Italy uh, signed with Libya to outsource its border controls. You have Gaddafi at certain times um, uh, baiting European Union leaders saying, I need five billion to uh, stop illegal immigration. If you don't give me that five billion, Europe will become black, he said. It will become overcome with, uh, by people with different religions uh, and it will change. And so that, that, that's, the, that's the, the background. And then we have from 2011 onwards, particularly 2015 context, this uh, sense of, of, an, of, of a migration crisis or an emergency in Europe emerging and not just the far right uh, seizing that opportunity to, to escalate its, its rhetoric, but the European Union uh, collect, uh, in a centralised manner, declaring these emergency summits, implementing emergency measures to, um, uh, to, to, to be able to identify and deport people quickly that are identified as or can be identified as, as an economic migrants, uh, as well as individual member states declaring uh, states of emergency on the perimeters of the EU, particularly to allow armed forces to be used to reinforce the borders and so on. And so, uh, and, I've, and I've, I know they, they, uh, there's uh, um, despair in the front row here, so I'm <laughs> I, will, I will stop talking now. And I know there is a, another um, um, uh, panel coming afterwards at a specific time. Uh, I will just note that my clock still now says 12 minutes gone. But uh, my, uh, ultimately, my uh, contention is that, that international law is very much part of the story of, of how this emergency is created and defined and wielded with uh, racialising effects, and that, as it stands, international law is is also not to not not equipped uh, to counter this process. And I think that will be addressed as well more fully in in the, in the next panel. So maybe that's a good place for me to to stop. So thank you. So that was wonderful, and it's my job to try to bring together the papers. And I thought one way of one way of thinking how they relate to one another is that they're all concerned with questions of who can move and who can use violence. And uh, for the most part, they're about constraining or enabling the movement and the use of violence by white bodies and constraining the movement and the use of violence by black bodies, either as terrorists or as mercenaries. Um, and one way to come at that, that relationship between them, so movement and violence, is to think of, of the racial contract um, as always un- being underpinned by violence. Right? Whiteness is necessarily contingent on violence, the same way law necessarily is contingent on violence, because the racial contract to be global has to be enforced at every moment, at every, at every particular turn, through violence. And so it's authorized, white violence is authorised by the very idea of whiteness to enforce that contract. And necessarily, because race has to then be universal, white violence has to be universal. It has to be necessarily always possible in the colonies and also um, in the metropole. And if you think of it in those terms, always global, always international, always a relationship between movement and violence, then the state as the site of violence is kind of the way Ngugi says that the state or the colonial state is an interlude between corporate rule before colonialism and corporate rule after colonialism. White violence is kind of the same. The state takes on the role of violence, but before that you have violence at the hand of privatized um, slavery and and, and colonization, and afterwards you have it at the hand of white mercenaries. So there's something about the relationship between movement and violence um, that I think can be productive. Um, true to form, I want to just make one sort of an intervention on each, on each paper relating to history and one novel. I've allowed one novel per, per intervention, and then shorter interventions about each other. One. So, so something that struck me about all of the papers is that there, there's a longer history to all the conversations going on, right? So if you think about the World War I, so the conversations between the imperial powers in World War I were much about how dare you arm black men to fight against white men. Right? So if you, if you follow the 
the to's and fro's between the Germans and the Allies in the blue books, and they're accusing each other of various crimes. One of the allegations made by one side is that the, the supreme crime of the First World War was the arming of black men in order to use violence against, against white men. And this was one of Smut's main concerns. Smut's main concerns was to, was to colonize in order to, get, to pull back the guns from the hands of, of, of black men in Africa who had been given by the Germans. So there's a, there's a longer history of that 100 years ago, of this, this, this fear about racialized violence. Um, and there's also a longer history in terms of borders, right? So even where we stand today, I was struck when, when you, John, said um, whiteness and Britishness are the same thing. I made the mistake yesterday going to St. Monica um, to go to a bar, and I saw a bar called the British Bar. And the British Bar has about eight flags, and it's England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Australia, and California. Right? And that's an interesting idea of what it is to be British. It wasn't a commonwealth. Obviously, British in that context means something. But there's a history of anti-immigration laws in, in California, right? And the, the prevention of, of immigration from, from changing the character of, of the white nation of, of America at the time. And Woodrow Wilson is part of this, obviously, in interesting ways. Um, and then this is a bit of a stretch, but one of my novel references to a guy called John Buchan, who, who, who is said to be the bard of, of whiteness by, by um, Bill Schwartz. So not, international lawyers like to think of themselves as being somewhere between Conrad and Kipling, but really it's Buchan and sort of trashy fiction that are the closest to the imagination of white international lawyers. And so Buchan writes a book in 1916 or 17, I think, called Green Mantle, when he imagines this global conspiracy by the Ottoman Empire to take over the world. Um, and, he, and then, obviously, as a, the real threat is not the Germans, it's actually the whole time we've been finding the Germans, the Ottomans have been organizing, and that's what's coming next. And what's interesting about that novel is it tracks quite closely Boris Johnson's novel that's written 100 years later about the threat that's coming from the Ottomans or threat that's coming um, from the South. And so I thought if that's true, if it's true that there's a longer conversation or there are previous historical episodes of movement of racialized and sexualized bodies um, of, of immigration, then how does race change between them? So what is the conceptualization of race that happens 100 years ago and what does it happen now? Because what I saw, in, certainly in, in John's and to some extent um, and Dina's and Catherine's, was a, was a very biological understanding of race, right? So the, the reason why you had to protect white nations in 100 years ago was not just to protect white nations. It was because whiteness itself would be bred out, essentially. This was the fear of the, the rising tide of color. The idea was that whiteness as, a, as an ethnicity would eventually, because of the, of the intermixing of white, so-called white people and so-called non-white people, and because of the hypersexualized nature, the racing, the, the race black of sexualization, that was inevitable. So you, this is what Stoddard is talking about and what Spencer gets obsessed with eugenics about. So it wasn't just about protecting particular countries as white nations. It was whiteness itself that was then through borders maintained. Right? So there's, and when you talk about the European way of life, I'm thinking life as a biological reference, not just life as in terms of customs and culture and manners, but life in terms of the very essence of what it is to be a, a thing as financial, a thing that is biologically organized. Um, and so that really ties in that over-sexualization is the same kind of understanding of the... They're not just mercenaries, who, they're, just, they're not just armed black men, they're armed black men who are hypersexualized, right? And that's precisely the kind of language that liberally we had left behind with more complex ways of understanding race without racism and more complex ways of talking about terrorism but not really talking about terrorism. And there seems to be something like a, a reversion to those, those crass biological, ontological, racist discourses, even in polite Europe and at polite bars in Santa Monica that I think is worthwhile thinking through. What is it, how is that different? And I just, I, only because Michael was my, I'm emulating everything you did, so you said there's a text you should read. So Frank Ferruti's written about this called The Silent War, about the evolution of concepts of racism um, in the white imagination. It was always in response to the fear of a rising color consciousness from the black world. And so that's the, the et, what he calls a new racial etiquette emerges in the 60s and 70s in relation to trying to move away from biological discourse because it comes a bit um, unpopular. So I guess I was thinking about how, how much you map on those different conceptions of race. And then just a quick intervention for, for each of you. So John, the Latapak story, um, oh, the, sorry, the story of the UDHR and the, the evolution of the, of the security provisions and that. So Latapak, in his initial 1945 International Bill of Rights of Man, has a, has a disclaimer to the section on political rights, and he says that this does not apply to black South Africans and to black Americans. Because, and the reason it doesn't apply to black South Africans is because to give black South Africans a right to vote, he, he imagines in 1945, would, be would essentially be suicide. It would have changed the character of South Africa as a white republic. So as a, as a precursor, maybe expanding the analysis of how nation becomes associated with race in the UDHR, you can go back also to political rights. And he does this explicitly, and it's not, 
um, it's not really discussed um, as to how Lemkin, the father of... Uh, so Smuts gets a lot of heat, but Lemkin had some... I'm sorry, Lauterbach has some problems as well. And as does Lemkin, in fact, have some problems in terms of his understanding of race. Um, and then I'll group you guys together because I'm conscious of time. The idea of definition, right? So when you're talking about definition, the problems of definition, we have these categories that are so obviously overburdened by, raci- by racialization, but we can't get the legal language right. So I was thinking about mercenaries and definitions of mercenaries. I was thinking about terrorism and the impossibility of defining terrorism. Organized crime, so I, for my sins, teach a course on criminology, which is way outside of my field of expertise, but it's, it gets me off teaching on, on the weekdays. Um, and one of the things about organized crime is it also it's a definition that cannot hold together without some type of racialization. Right? Organized crime doesn't really work when you try to find it unless you have in the back of your mind um, a particular raced Eastern European community initially was sort of Italians and Sicilians. So these def- this, this inability to define things unless racist background, I think, comes in both, both of those two papers. And to some extent, the idea of, of the drug trafficking and sort of rhetoric around drugs and people coming from South America bringing drugs. So there's something about those. And I wanted to finish on, in terms of bringing together the, the question of law and race. So there's a similar problem in defining whiteness. So one of the things I start with when I teach first-year law is the way that the apartheid state tried to define what a white person was. And this is, if you want to think of difficult definitions. So a white person is, quote, an appearance, an obviously white person, who is generally not accepted as a colored person, or is generally accepted as a white person, and is not, in appearance, obviously not a white person. (laughs) And I thought of terrorism, and I thought of mercenarism, and I thought of organized crime. Thank you. In, the, in the American legal context, it's uh, it's called "I know it when I see it." Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Please join me in thanking the panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.